As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Yeah, joining us today are The Times' very own Alison Rudd and James Gearbrandt. Coming up, we're going to look ahead to the weekend's Premier League action, which includes one of England's classic fixtures. Saturday's early kickoff sees Liverpool put their 100% record on the line against Newcastle. But first, we're looking back at a week of international action that saw mixed emotions for the home nations. First up, England, who maintained their perfect start to Euro 2020 qualification. But it was a mixed night, wasn't it, for England, as Gareth Southgate's side continued their rampant march towards next summer's European Championships with a 5-3 win over Kosovo in Southampton. Not all plain sailing then, with the three Lions conceding after just 34 seconds in their first ever game against the Kosovans. Uh, Despite the horror star, England and their front three in particular dominated the first half. Five goals, which included a first and second goal in international football for Borussia Dortmund's Jadon Sancho. Question is, does he now have the potential to go on to be not just England's best player, but perhaps the world's best player? James? Uh... <laughs> I think that's a big, big, big question. It is. Um, I think Jaden Sancho. You're looking at a player who last season in in the Bundesliga, one of the top European leagues, uh, I think scored 12 goals and and was the was the leading assist provider in the entire Bundesliga with with 14 assists. I mean, he's he's already performing at an elite level, and I think when you look at that age bracket, really in in world football, you're looking at probably Kylian Mbappe out on his own and and then probably Sancho is probably second behind him at, at the moment but of course as we all know it's not these things don't necessarily kind of progress in a sort of linear manner and I, I think England we've sort of seen a few English players haven't we who sort of have seemed like world beaters at that sort of age and 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 you know the progression hasn't necessarily always been um you know straightforward to being an absolutely world class. I mean, you know, I think you could quite frankly argue that Sancho is is verging on world class at the moment, but the progression is not always straightforward. But at the moment, I think England could scarcely wish for a more exciting teenage young talent. Quite frankly, well, Alison, we do have a habit of sort of bigging up these young players, but do we have to be careful at the same time putting too much on him at, at such a young age? Well, if it all goes wrong, I think you should blame you, Natalie, for that, <laughs> for that hyperbole, actually. <laughs> I think a sign that England are progressing is that we don't have to do that. What I want most from England are not starlets. I don't want to see the next big thing. We have access to a wealth of talent. 
And I think it's fantastic that we have access to somebody who's had the bravery to think my domestic career is stalling. I need to think laterally I'm going to go abroad and get more game time and learn about another culture and another team. And it's done him. It's done him the world of good. He's, he's, he's flowered and blossomed as a player. And it's good that his international manager appreciates that. But that sh- I, I sort of feel if England are going to win the Euros, for example, they have to be of a mindset where that's just one... He's just one of many... He brings he brings his own um, experiences and pace and talent and touch to the England team, but we are not in a we are not in a state where we are relying on someone like him. It should it should matter not one jot whether he's he's fit for the actual European campaign or not. You, it, we we should be a, we should be at a stage now where we feel we've we've got cover in all positions. That Gareth Southgate knows the type of football he wants to play, and having access to someone like Sancho is a bonus, rather than, like you said, it's it, it's a danger, isn't it, if you pin your hopes on one individual? And why would we need to when you've got someone who's proven, like Raheem Sterling, who seems to be able to switch on for club and country whenever he wants to? So there's, I think it would serve Sancho better if we didn't bang on about how lucky we are to have him. I think it's better to th- to just relax and luxuriate in the fact that we have access to young talent. Mm. With all that said... Oh, did. yeah, he's thrilling. He's <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Gregor. Let's hear it. What did you make of his performance then? No, he is. He is thrilling to watch. And you won't find many players with kind of better technical ability, I don't think. Um, but Alison makes obviously a good point. It's true that... The, the the most exciting thing about England is that they have so many options really and and especially in attacking areas and so many of these he's not the only sort of young talent that's that's emerging as well which is means that you don't have to put him put him up on a pedestal uh, or hopefully you don't have to I nearly said we there but um, <laughs> that but yeah yes, he is he's he's thrilling to watch but um, and and he looks more and more athletic every time I see him as well he seems to be kind of growing and filling out and. And um, he's he's certainly someone who's who's got a huge huge future and enormous potential to become sort of spoken about in 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 the kind of upper echelon, the top bracket of players in the world. Yeah, mm. and we you mentioned that we've got a, a young squad in England, but Raheem Sterling is still very young as well at what twenty four years of age. But he is showing a lot more maturity and a lot more responsibility. Alison, responsibility. What do you mean Just by on the pitch, he's becoming more of a leader in some ways, especially and even in, even in training sessions. They've talked about how he is he's showing more responsibility around those around those younger players in, in showing them the way to be. Yeah, the way. Yeah, I would. I think I'd interpret it, interpret that more as this is what happens when you're at an incredibly successful club, and then you're you have to go and mingle with with plebs from other clubs, and you oh, you wow. feel you feel like well. I do know how to win and I know what a winning mentality is. And I'm not saying he does this on purpose, but I'm sure on a subconscious level, he must feel he's automatically a leader in that sense mm. because he's playing week in, week out with the most expensive players you can have, the most talented players you can have with a highly, very highly regarded manager. They play, City play thrilling football. It's highly effective. They just swept the board domestically last season in terms of trophies it would be very odd for him to go into the England setup and not have an aura about him even though he's young 
it's the old show us your medals mentality, I know, but I do think it probably feeds off itself in that he goes to the England camp with all those, with that background. And I think his his teammates will treat him with a certain amount of extra respect, knowing that he's been an integral part of City's success. And that will give him the confidence to feel, yes, I can act a bit like a leader here. So it, it, it's, it, yeah, it, it stems from the success he's had, I think. I think it'd be impossible for him to be a, a shrinking violet in the England setup right now. Well, Henry Winter from the Times, of course, he's, he's said of of Sterling that he's struggling to think of many more influential English sporting figures than Raheem Sterling currently for combined impact on and off the field. We did speak about his influence on, on Monday's podcast, Gregor. Um, do you think he is the first name on Southgate's team these days? Um yeah, I mean, it's, do you um, think? Do you think when Southgate picks up his pencil, do you think he writes <laughs> Sterling or Kane? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe you know, figuring out how to use both hands so you can write them simultaneously because <laughs> it is obviously those those two guys are are combining to great effect, and they're the two kind of talismanic figures, if that's the right kind of word, at the moment for England. Um, I think the other thing that's good, that's interesting about Sterling and and the idea of him being a leader is that. He's sort of very relatable to, to for a lot of the young guys coming in, like Sancho and Hudson Odoi when he did so, and <clears throat> guys who are in, in their late teens or early twenties. Because Ryan Sterling's, you know, he's he won't be twenty five until December. Um, he's still a very young young lad, but he's already achieved a great deal and been on quite a kind of journey as an England player. When you consider that he was sort of getting the finger pointed at him in the World Cup in Russia for some of his displays, and people were saying he didn't have any end product and um he's obviously had some some difficulties with the with the media and and uh, he's come through all of that and and much stronger and and he's sort of he's the player now England look to if if something needs to happen in a game if there's if if it's nil nil or game's tight he's probably the guy who's going to produce that moment of magic for for England so all, all of that has happened in a short space of time, and and these guys who are coming into the team see that, and and see someone like like I say is still only a few years older than him, um, and that's I think that's quite powerful for the rest of the squad. Well, after the game, the Kosovan manager said of Sterling that in the past he was very speedy, but the final ball or shot was not so good. It is now incredible. He's learnt a lot with Guardiola. He is one of the best players in the world now. Is it all down to Pep Guardiola? This. This rise of Sterling, Jane. I, yeah, I think certainly he he's obviously he has obviously reaped the benefits of playing for Pep and playing in this absolutely incredible sort of finely calibrated attacking machine and and with all the sort of the insights that Guardiola has into sort of the science of a of sort of you know attacking football. So yes, with with any player, you you sort of you acknowledge their debt to the coaches they've had, and and you also kind of you know you salute their their own kind of their own qualities and and you know his own hard work and and his own sort of development and maturity and sort of tactical intelligence as, as a footballer. And so you don't want to kind of I don't want to sort of um, diminish the role that Sterling himself has played in in his own rise. And I, I do think. We are now 
getting to the stage with, with Sterling where we're talking about someone who really the elite of the elite now, probably someone who's certainly in the in the top ten players on on the planet right now and, and maybe even sort of, you know, in, in even more rarefied company than that. I mean, we're talking about a player at the at the absolute top of their game and one who I think probably more than anyone else will inspire that fear in, in opposition teams at, 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 you know, Euro 2020. Is he in the same bracket then as Messi and Ronaldo? Then? No, he's obviously not in that bracket. But, but I mean, yes, he's sort of, yeah, he's he's up there in the sort of top 10 and, and maybe even, you know, top five or six, mm. in my opinion. There were then plenty of positives to take from the game, but you don't concede three goals against any side uh, in international football with with without some negatives and there were plenty of mistakes defensively <sighs> what's gone wrong defensively do you think for for England Alison well I I almost don't care about the individual errors made that you can't draw you can't extrapolate from them people will make mistakes that's fine I, I'm not going to suddenly say Harry Maguire's clumsy he's not he's he's someone we should build a team around if if Michael Keane made a mistake then it's not about the mistake he made it's about how his whole performance was was that indicative of someone who's not entirely maybe comfortable in the system that's more interesting to me than the individual mistakes if defensive mistakes are made you do have to look at the whole and I don't think England have yet mastered the art of knowing who they are and if you play on off football which is what I think England do then then you'll get these moments of inertia in a game where you're put under pressure. So England set up 4-3-3, they look most like Liverpool but they have none of the practice that Liverpool have You have they have none of the pressing relentless pressing that Liverpool have and the sense of a unit that Liverpool have they rely on the pace of the front three they have a fairly pedestrian um, midfield and when they take their foot off the gas, England and uh, starts passing it slowly and looking like England of old, where they just didn't know what to do next. You will, the defence will come under pressure and it will give any opposition, no matter where they are in the world rankings, the, the sense that they can sense weakness or hesitancy and have a go at have a go at them. So it's not about individual mistakes, it's about the system and how hard it is when you're an international manager to get a new set of players who aren't together very often to play as a unit we should as a, as a country replicate the best of the Premier League and if we were able to do that effectively we would win the European Championships with ease but it's just too difficult to do that <coughs> so that that to me is, is more of a problem than any individual mistake it's the reasons why they were made it's, it's interesting isn't it because I think under Southgate this idea of playing out from the back has been quite a core part of the identity that he's tried to instill in England and, and obviously we saw that quite a lot in the World Cup campaign where they played the back three and and John Stones sort of fulfilled that role and was quite emblematic of this sort of new direction that England were trying to go in and there were sort of various various press conferences where Southgate was asked about why a certain defender hadn't been called up and he'd say well no we're trying to you know Smalling was one of them and he was saying well you know I don't rate his ability to pass the ball out from the back and and so it was very very clear it's been very very clear in Southgate's reign that playing the ball out from defence is quite a key, a core part of what he's trying to build. The interesting thing to me is that it doesn't really feel like England are actually getting better at doing this. There have been 
you know, quite, as Alison said, it, it's always, you always have to be a little bit wary of sort of isolating individual mistakes, but there suddenly have been a few. There was a Stones error, I think, in the in the Holland game in the Nations League semi-finals. There was obviously this Keane error in, in this game. There have been one or two others that I can't quite call to mind, but it's tricky, isn't it? Because obviously that's what Southgate is trying to build and instill. It does not the players. Well, that, well... <laughs> I mean, you could argue that maybe in Stones, for example, he does have, you know, someone who could fulfil that role, but then Stones isn't really playing at club level and is he part of Southgate's, you know, best 11 anymore? And is he still error-prone? I think, essentially, it's the only place in England's team where they probably are short of one elite international-level player. Gomez is probably the, 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 the closest. He could be the, the guy who comes in alongside Maguire and that could be the best partnership. But John Stones continues to make errors people say and he's young and this is the way he's trying to play he's playing in these these types of teams it still happens still costs goals Michael Keane I don't think is is of that standard Tyrone Mings obviously he had the call up and he perhaps Southgate wants to see more of him over the course of a Premier League season see how consistent he is at the at the level but there's potential for him playing in that position he's got a nice left foot and there's a bit of balance there people have talked about the weakness in England's midfield or, or sort of not knowing exactly what the best formula is there I think I think that's England's one weak spot. You've got great options at fullback, both sides. Harry Maguire is not. It's not like he's a Rio Ferdinand or a John Terry either. He's a, he's a great player and he's made a big move in the summer. But I wouldn't say he's a he's a you know a bona fide leader like that. So that's the and he's he's the guarantee. So and who, somebody else needs to play alongside, and that's your one, your one weakness. It's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously, when you try to when you try to instill a kind of philosophy you accept, particularly with, you know, playing in that way, you accept that there will be, that it's a slightly more kind of, you know, mistake-prone way to play than just sort of lumping the ball out from the back. But it's, it's difficult because obviously international teams don't play that much, so you have small sample size, And but it does seem like there have been a lot of mistakes. And I guess, I don't know, I'm not sure it's even a question of whether or not to persevere with it. I think England clearly are going to persevere with that way of playing, and I think that's right. But... Um, you make more mistakes if you have to think about what you're doing. That's the point. And when these players come to England, they're having to adjust slightly. They don't. England don't have this thing. You don't slot into the England team knowing who you are. You have to think, this is how Southgate wants us to play. But it's artificial, mm. really. It's not England. It's not something t- identifiably English. Whereas that's what the advance other countries have on us, that you, you can watch a lot of countries, a lot of them are a lot smaller than ours, who have a style. And when, when those players, they're dotted around the world, when they come back to their country, they suddenly slot into something that is a national identity of play that, on the pitch. We that, don't have that. That's what Southgate is trying to build, though, isn't yeah, that's it? What you have to but, it's, but it doesn't build exist. Sort of... So these, no, right, these, but... <laughs> these players haven't had it since they were little, knowing what that is. No, that that may be true, but he's he's at least he is at least trying to build that as opposed to sort of previous England regimes. He has a sort of clear, kind of identifiable style of play, philosophy, call it what you want, that he's trying to implement. But while he's trying, you will get mistakes. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts calendar double tap to open breakfast with anna from 10 to 11 and get on with your day accessibility there's more to iphone 
So England continued their 100% record in qualifying, but Gregor, we have Do to we talk have about. To. I'm sorry, Do we, we have, have to talk about Scotland. And uh, yes, it was a 4-0 Kevin De Bruyne-inspired Belgium win uh, on Monday night that saw Scotland suffer uh, another defeat in qualifying. Has this all but ended Scotland's hopes then, do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you're talking about defensive worries, then I mean, you should come and look at Scotland. We had Charlie Mulgrew and us. Two guys I mentioned and Liam Cooper, probably our fifth and sixth choice centre half, so that doesn't help. But um, and a Kilmarnock right back, um, just sort of cutting through us at ease, and it will. Um, and we're behind Cyprus and Kazakhstan in the group. It's been a good time to be alive as a Scotland. <laughs> but you've got you've got the Nations League playoff. The, the, the well, listen, I'm going to come to that. Yes, yes. I th- Michael Grant wrote a great piece uh, in the Times yesterday, the Scottish Times correspondent. Um, Basically saying, please, uh, please, God, not this is not a time for another sort of post mortem because we get them every two years. And it's like we're not going to qualify. What's wrong with the national game? And they start talking about everything from the death of street football and there being no ball signs and and an obesity crisis crisis in Scotland and it being cold <laughs> and the lack of facilities and all this stuff. And it just the same stuff just keeps getting trot, trotted out every two years. And then, is anything done about it? No. So, like, there was a kind of government report done about 10 years ago by Henry McLeish, who was the First Minister, and he recommended, like, f- £500 million worth of investment in facilities, and they just sort of laughed at that when he when he authored that report. So it's not a surprise that the same things are happening over and over again. So, anyway, well, there are positives. Steve Clark is a good manager. He's the best we could possibly hope for as well. And he's only been in charge for a handful of games. And they've been tough games. You know, Belgium are number one in the world. Um, and we've got more players playing in the Premier League than we've had in many a year. Although they're not all performing when they turn up to play for Scotland, unfortunately. But why and then? Why is that not happening? Some of them is hard to put your finger on. Someone like John McGinn has kind of just been electric for Aston Villa for the last 12, 18... Well, since he, since he joined last August. Uh, and he really... He scored... In, uh, against Russia the other night, and had a, you know was really on the front foot in the first fifteen minutes, and then he faded, and he always has. He's just not done it for Scotland, and it's hard to put your finger on why that's. When we had Alex McLeish, it was just it was all really very depressing. I would just want you have to give Steve Clark time to sort of to improve in this, and as James said, we have the kind of golden ticket they are waiting. We've got a chance against probably Bulgaria at Hamden. You know, the fans come out and get behind them there. You should hope to get past that hope. And then I think it's Norway or Serbia look at, would be the, the likely sort of finalists, another one-off game. It doesn't get much much sort of better than that, really, Another as for a second chance. So if we fail to get past that, OK, we'll open up the post-mortem again and we'll, t- we'll talk through all these things again and we'll, and we'll deserve it at that point. But we don't need to do it just now. We've still got games to try and sort of figure out how we're going to attack those games when they come around and I think the first one's in March I heard Pat Nevin say one of the biggest problems was apathy amongst the Scotland supporters A, do you think that's true and if you do, why? I mean, I know why you might be disappointed that it's going wrong but if anyone can swing a game especially when it comes to the playoffs it can be a raucous crowd if 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 you're not going to turn up believing, it's not going to happen yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it comes to a playoff, they'll they'll get a good crowd and 
there was only 32,000 against uh, Russia, I think it was. So that does suggest that, you know, they're just not really turning up with much hope at all. And then when you see you're going to play Belgium, after you've just been beaten, gubbed by Russia, it's not really much of a, <laughs> an incentive to go and watch watch Scotland play against... You know, you'd think going, going to watch Scotland, your country play against the best team in the world. But isn't that really hard world. as a player to fight against? If you know people aren't turning up because they think it's a foregone conclusion, how on earth do you lift your game? It won't help, no. But like I say, when it comes to the to the crunch games, we were already out before these these games, let's be honest about it. When you go to Kazakhstan and get, get beaten... They're the games that you need the points from. We were already in trouble, so this just confirmed it. But when it comes to the playoff games, I'm sure you'll see a, a raucous Hamden, and that can be quite powerful. It has been in the past for Scotland. I think the Russia game was the first time in, I can't remember how many years, but a lot, a long time that we'd lost at Hamden in a competitive game. It's been a good you know, good home ground for us. So there is some, some hope still, and we're clinging on to it. The Rugby World Cup 2019 kicks off in Japan next week. The Times will be at every game and The Ruck, our award-winning rugby podcast, will be covering the tournament in its unique style. Presented by World Cup winner and former England captain Lawrence Delalio, we'll be bringing you the latest news from Owen Slott, Stephen Jones and the rest of our writers on the ground as they experience the sights and sounds of the greatest tournament in world rugby. The first of two preview shows is available now. Just search for The Ruck on Spotify Apple Podcasts or Acast and don't forget to subscribe to never miss an episode. Now we all remember that famous fixture of 23 years ago. 4-3 to Liverpool on that Wednesday night under the lights. So, is this the most entertaining fixture in Premier League history with Liverpool taking on Newcastle? Liverpool will be looking to keep up their 100% win records in the Premier League this weekend with Newcastle travelling to Anfield. Where and how can Newcastle pick up all three points in this one, Alison? Well, they'll be hoping that. Lunchtime kickoffs. sometimes the atmosphere is not great, is it? Let me think of that. There's been a break, international break. Maybe Liverpool's players are slightly more, had more demands upon them than the Newcastle contingent. Maybe they've got... 1% fear factor around them because they looked quite stoic and dour and defensively well drilled when they played Spurs. So I think I think Newcastle, I don't actually think they will get anything, but to just play devil's advocate, <laughs> I think if they go there, I think they have to go there feeling that they're progressing, that they're slowly getting an identity back. They have to take a lot of heart from the fact that they embarrassed Spurs, I think. Um... Other than that, form book would say Liverpool might start slowly because it it, it it's weird lunchtime kickoffs just just very quiet at Anfield. It can sometimes just feel a bit uh, meh. But I think you know Liverpool will do what they need to do to get the three points. Maybe maybe the point for Newcastle is is even if they can't win it or get a draw, they at least look look like they're going somewhere and they're not falling apart and that that wasn't a blip the result against Spurs that they they can build on that so they if they you know if they get away with a 1-0 or 2-0 defeat I think they might be too disappointed actually they could regard that as something to build on mm. that's well, a positive I can be for them <laughs> well, well, isn't, I mean you mentioned the international break is that then is this then the best time for Newcastle to take on Liverpool yeah maybe um, I, I, I don't know really 
not sure there's I'm not sure there's there's any there's any really good time for Newcastle to play Liverpool. But <laughs> but yeah, I suppose you're right. I mean, the the international break can have a bit of a sort of disruptive effect, and and also you know it's the start of the season, and I think the big teams generally tend to be more vulnerable at the start of the season and I think we have actually we've seen that a little bit with Liverpool haven't we particularly on the defensive side they sort of don't look quite like they're 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 up to the the level that they they were playing at last season so it could be a good time uh it could be a good time to to play them yeah it, it's always tricky I think when you're sort of a bottom half team or and and it's sort of in in one way it's nice to get the tough fixes out of the way out of the way at the start but also obviously those runs can be, you know, they can kill sort of belief and, and stuff. But obviously, from Newcastle's point of view, what's great for them is that they got that win against against Tottenham, which obviously helps build things like, you know, belief and, and kind of trust in, in, in what the manager is trying to do. And that win over Tottenham, they were under a lot of pressure, Newcastle as well, but they came through it. So that is something you imagine Steve Bruce will definitely be wanting to build upon, that sort of courage and that strength. Yeah, that was a massive... That's a result for Newcastle. I mean, I think we can rest assured it won't be another 4-3 like that classic. I think he's going to take a similar approach. Um, and who can blame him, quite frankly. Uh, but yeah, that's that was that was huge for, for Newcastle. And Steve Bruce desperately needed a result like that. Um, but I'd be amazed if we get anything like that again this weekend because Liverpool are just too devastating in attack and wave after wave of attack... Um, any defence does really well to, to sort of hold that back, hold back the tide for, for too long. So um, I'd be very surprised to see anything other, but other than a Liverpool win. They have conceded in every game so far, bar their win over Burnley, which was their last win before the international break. And James mentioned there, Alison, about defensively, they have lo- haven't looked as solid as maybe last season. What do you think Jürgen Klopp's been doing? What's happened? Why are they not looking as good as we would expect a Liverpool defence to be? Well, they push they push further up the pitch, and there have been suggestions that um, not you know not relying on marginal offsides anymore has an impact as well. You've 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 got to sort of assume that things that look okay might not be okay. You might get pulled up. Um, I think probably he's tweaked it, and they are more relaxed than they were last season about their ability to win games and and be good defensively and perhaps that is an adjustment in attitude almost you know the full backs push up so much and it doesn't matter how brilliant you are at centre half position they will be exposed to have no nervousness about that does give the odd glimmer of hope to any opposition so I think possibly we will see an slightly increased conservatism as Liverpool go through the season but at the moment, I don't think I don't think they because they are so as as Gregor said so devastating in attack. You you can absorb blips at the back because you just know you're going to outscore your opponents. So I, I just I think it's nuances. I, I genuinely do. I think I don't think anything majors happen there. I just I just feel they ironically they're leakier at the back because they're more confident in their defence. And we should talk about the front three, obviously. For Liverpool and, and Alison, you wrote a, a fantastic piece today for the Times called Greedy, Selfish, Toxic. So how do strikers form lethal partnerships? We saw obviously Sadio Mane's frustrations at greedy Mo Salah, let's say, 
Um, and it's, as I say, it's a fascinating piece that you've written about sort of the alpha male in the dressing rooms. But how do these partnerships form when, when you have these clashes, perhaps, with, with players that want to score goals, want to be greedy, want to be selfish? Yeah, well, first of all, that was the starting point for the piece, was what's going on at Liverpool? Is Mo Salah greedy? And when I started to speak to the experts, I thought I was, originally I thought I was going to be told, oh, it's good for the team and it's just a healthy competition and they'll all be best of mates. It's fine. But actually, that is not the case necessarily. Um, I spoke to one sports psychologist who has um, profiled in depth 250 Premier League players almost over the span of the Premier League, all done in confidence, of course, so he's not going to name names. But he said the strikers are the hardest well, the hardest for him to speak to, to get to grips with. And he basically painted a picture of strikers as being almost sociopaths, or at least at the sort of beginning <laughs> of the phase of being sociopaths. They were not normal. And he said you cannot go anywhere in the country, any dressing room, well, for elite football at least, and you can't find two of them in the dressing room. There can only be one alpha male who is the striker. You can't have two two strikers in a team who both think they have the right to be the goal-getter. And so, it, therefore, so I'm thinking, how does it work then? Because if you're a striker, you're going to be an alpha male and you're going to be wanted to be the leading goal-scorer. So then I spoke to more people and it just became a pattern of how no matter who you describe, no matter which striking partnership you talk about, and there have been many, many famous ones in the history of English football, one of one member of that striking partnership has to be the out-and-out, selfish, toxic, nasty, if you like, piece, piece of work, who, even if he's the one who's scoring fewer goals than his striking partner, will only believe that's a blip and he's on the verge he said no matter how many times he interviewed these alpha males even if they'd only scored two goals and their striking partner had scored 10 they would say yes but I'm about to score 20 and they believe they completely believe they were on the verge of proving themselves as the alpha male so it was very interesting I was able to talk to Daniel Sturridge because if you go to any list of the best striking partnerships in the Premier League Suarez and Sturridge will be up there in the list they they were aesthetically pleasing and very productive. But it worked because of a nuance of Daniel Sturridge arrived at Liverpool, Suarez was already there, and Sturridge said, it, subtly he made it plain to Suarez, I'm not here to take over the alpha male role. I'm here to help you and help the team. And right from it helped also that they just, they gelled immediately as, as, as a partnership, so they didn't have to work at it. But little things like the fact that right from the very beginning, they decided to communicate in Spanish, oh. in Spanish on the pitch in order, in order ostensibly to befuddle mainly England defenders about what they were talking about and what they might be about to do. But if you think about it, that's a pecking order sort of thing, isn't it? It's Sturridge going in and saying, it's a subtle way of saying to Suarez, you are the leading striker, you're the alpha, alpha male I am here to score goals as well, but let's. I sort of sort of accept you're probably going to score slightly more than me. And if you if you watch that partnership through their time together, what would happen would be Sturridge would set up Suarez for say two goals, and then once that was established, Suarez would then set up Sturridge. It was yeah, give and take. We got on brilliantly, but let's not forget who the alpha male is here. And then 
just talking to different people. I mean, Alan Smith was fascinating because he was a golden boot winner for Arsenal for two seasons. He was the golden boot winner of the prem, you know, of of the English first division. He he was the tops. He should have been an alpha male, but when a real alpha male came in in the form of Ian Wright, he fell apart. He 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 couldn't he couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle it. He he he, he almost handed it to Ian Wright on a plate. Oh, you're clearly more alpha male than me. And he almost forgot how to shoot. He said he was getting balls in the same position he was the season before, but he was scuffing the ball because he'd lost that innate sense of confidence of I'm the top dog here, mm. I can score. So it was fascinating. But probably the most fascinating thing was talking to the, the sort of scientific sports psychologist experts who used who used that language. Toxic, selfish, difficult, self-absorbed, living in a world where they believe they are the, the only people that matter. Does this all ring true to your time <laughs> in the dressing room then, Gregor? Yeah, to, to a degree, yeah. I mean, look, I didn't uh, I didn't play with many elite strikers, but um, I remember at Nottingham Forest when I was starting out, there was David Johnson and Marlon Harewood. And David Johnson was the alpha male in that. He came for a few million quid, which is a lot of money back then, from Ipswich. Didn't really hit it off at first. He was he, he didn't score that many goals in, in a I think I think the thing that that shone through from the piece is often when when the alpha male is is uh, is not finding the back of the net, that's when you'll see the sort of toxicity and you'll see the the sort of jilted the jilted sort of you still want to be the top dog. And Marlon Harewood was a young guy who'd come through the academy and he was he was going on he was, looked like he was going on to bigger and better things, which he did with West Ham. You got the guys who are supposed to be the top dogs, the top goal scorers. And neither of whom are sort of firing all cylinders. It wasn't. I don't think that contributed to a, a healthy atmosphere mm. in the changing room. So, oh, I think really the thing is, it's all about human relationships. There's obviously nuance to all of that, um, and it's how how people get on as a partnership, and even just the sort of dynamics of a changing room and and partnerships all over the pitch. But that's certainly one that is. Uh, I did sort of recognise certain facets of yeah. So, from what you've found out then Alison when you look at uh, the front three for, for Liverpool is it Mo Salah then who is the alpha male or is Sadio Mane trying to exert his authority in particular when, as we saw last time when he was so annoyed it seemed with his uh, teammate well the, the problem at Liverpool is that they both scored the same number of goals last season and they both shared the golden boot so I suspect what's happened is that Mane feels he's equal at least equal to his strike partner, if you can call him that. But, you know, he's effectively a strike partner because Bobby Firmino just drops so deep and you see it's just the two of them. Who's going to pass to who? Oh, he's not passing. And that could... The experts were slightly divided on this, but that could mean it just makes Liverpool all the more potent because of that competitiveness that each of them wants to, this season, be the one that wins the golden boot. Or... There's a slim chance that it could it could it could fracture their relationship if if one of them isn't prepared to step back and accept that it's the other one who's the alpha male. But currently, yes, the alpha male, the top dog, is Mo Salah. 
So the international break is over and on Monday we will look back on the Premier League and the full EFL returning. And that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Alison Rudd and James Gearbrandt. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information and we'll be back on Monday then, looking back on all of the weekend's action, including that trip for Newcastle to Anfield. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhones.